few weeks back, we spent one message just looking at the one another commands in the New Testament. So we saw there was be at peace with one another, prefer one another, be like-minded with one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, serve one another, confess your faults to one another, submit yourselves to one another, and the list goes on. We actually spent about 44 different texts that morning, and that in itself was not all-inclusive to prove essentially that you cannot be obedient to the Lord Jesus unless you're being obedient to him in the community of believers known as the church. There is this one-anotherness that Scripture compels us to embrace. And of all those one-another commands, there is no command given more frequently, about a dozen different times, than the command that, sh- that says simply, love one another. So, for example, Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He said, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Owe no man anything, Paul says, but to love one another. He wrote to the church at Thessalonica and he said, regarding brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And the apostle John wrote, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. So as we continue in this series on the church and church membership, we can note that church members are expected to attend, they're expected to give financially, they're expected to submit to the ordinances, they're to engage in worship, to use their spiritual gifts for the benefit of the assembly, but there is no more foundational truth then church members are commanded to love one another. This is the Apostle Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I know this passage of Scripture. We haven't read it yet, I know. This passage of Scripture on love gets used in other contexts. For example, it's not bad to use this chapter at a wedding because it outlines the definition and the description of love. However, It's the Apostle Paul's intention here to describe love as it relates to church members, to loving one another through serving in the church. In chapter 12, Paul deals with the subject of spiritual gifts. And since the church at Corinth consists of born-again believers, just like every other church, Each member is given a spiritual gift to use in service of the assembly. But the church at Corinth was such a mess that each member was analyzing their personal gift to see and decide whether it was better or worse than the next person's. Like, we want to be ranked in order of our gift's value, and I want to make sure everybody knows that I'm up here. Instead of just doing what the Lord had enabled them to do, They wanted to brag about how much more important each of them was. So for example, look back at the end of chapter 12. Paul starts to talk about those who want to brag about the greatness of their gifts. And he says in chapter 12, starting at verse 29, Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? 
Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. In other words, it's perfectly fine to desire what we would call the best gifts if your desire for those gifts is to benefit the church and it's not an attempt to inflate your own ego. And so that final phrase, I show you a more excellent way, is actually Paul's introduction to chapter 13. Love is the more excellent way. Not because love is a spiritual gift, but because, as Paul intends to prove in this chapter, love is the motivating factor which makes all those spiritual gifts work. Now, just one more word before we actually read the chapter. When we read through 1 Corinthians 13, you're going to note that the King James Version has the word charity. Charity has come to mean something in our day that is not what it meant 400 years ago. Charity has, has come to, to mean this act of, of giving, but it is a helpful translation in that sense. At least with the word charity, we understand that this means giving. It means doing. It requires some sort of selfless act. Since the idea of loving one another is so foundational to Christianity, the writers of the New Testament opted to utilize what was in their day an unusual Greek word. You've heard this word agape. And it just means love. But it was so seldom used outside of Scripture in Greek writing. The inspired writers of the Bible took this word agape and said like, you don't use it that much, so let us use it and we'll define it. It's this word that becomes the selfless, God-infused love of Jesus' disciples. And it is radically countercultural. The Greek culture celebrated knowledge or intelligence, right? The more that you knew, the more impressive, the greater you were. The Roman culture celebrated power and authority. The more control you had, the greater you were. Christianity intends to show the world that love is a more excellent way than either one of those. Now, let's finally read the text. And where Paul uses that word agape, I am going to read the word love. Okay? 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envies not. Love vaunts not itself. Is not puffed up. 
does not behave itself unseemly, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abides faith Hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is an entirely misunderstood idea in Paul's day and in our day. Love does not describe your feelings about chocolate. Love is not something that gets defined by a Disney movie or a romance novel or an act of the U.S. Congress. Love is not something that gets made in a one-night stand. 20 centuries worth of songwriters and painters and poets have not and could not capture the beauty of love. If you want to know love, you can see it in the work of God for his people. When you want to get to know love, you can get to know it through the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect expression of God's love. When you want to get to know love, you come to 1 Corinthians 13 and you allow the Apostle Paul, who is inspired by the Spirit of God, to tell you what love is because it takes God, who is love, to define love for us. This chapter is a lot to take at one time. But it is a comprehensive unit. we We need all of it, not just a little bit. So in this chapter... Paul is arguing that love is the surpassing Christian reality that is greater than even the greatest spiritual gift. If you study this chapter with me this morning, what we're going to see in these essentially three sections of this chapter, in verses 1 through 3, the priority of love, in verses 4 through 7, the properties of love, And in verses 8 through 13, the permanence of love. So in verses 1 through 3, the priority of love. Listen again to how Paul says this. You must have love. Love is the priority. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. 
And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Now before we dig in there into verses 1 through 3, I want you to remember that Paul is writing to a church. He is telling members of a church to use their spiritual gifts in love. Love itself is not a spiritual gift. It would be tempting to think of it that way. But spiritual gifts are unique and love is uniform. In other words, if we made a list of spiritual gifts, we could go down that list and say, well, there's the gift that the Holy Spirit has given me. There's a gift that the Holy Spirit has given to someone else. But love is not like that. Love is, it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Right? Galatians 5, 22 and 23, Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Right? Those, are, those are things that are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Those are things that all believers are given by the Spirit to possess as an inner quality. Love is on that list. So this is not a question of whether or not Love is your spiritual gift. Paul is not setting up love as a contrast to any individual gifts. If I'm reading this right, he's arguing that the indwelling spirit uses love as a sort of fuel that makes the spiritual gifts effective and useful. In the church at Corinth, those those who considered themselves to be Right, the super saints, they were the, the high and exalted people because they had the best gifts. Those people were filled with pride and envy and self-promotion, filled with the very things that Paul describes here in 1 Corinthians 13 that love never does. Meanwhile, others who did not have those kind of gifts thought, well, because I'm not gifted in that great way, they weren't serving the church at all. And Paul's going to argue here that failing to serve in the church isn't because you don't have the ability. If you're failing to serve, it's because love is what you're missing. So listen to how he begins. No spiritual gift and no personal sacrifice has meaning unless it is fueled by love, right? Especially in Corinth, the gift of tongues was something that they prized greatly. But he says it's worthless without love. In verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and don't have love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Literally, he's saying I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Tongues without love, you're making noise, but Paul says you're just making meaningless, annoying noise. Now note, it is not Paul's purpose, as I have heard people argue in the past, it is not Paul's purpose here to say that the gift of tongues that people claim that they have today that make no sense, it's just babble, that they will defend it and say, oh, that's the tongues of angels Paul was talking about here. That's not what he's saying. In fact, in Scripture, every angel that speaks 
is able to be understood. And every person who speaks in tongues in Scripture is speaking a language that is an understandable language. Paul's purpose here is to say that genuine communication goes beyond just the words you use and the eloquence with which you use them. Meaningful communication has to be fueled by love, the the heart that is saying those things. So you could be the most distinguished and gifted speaker on earth. It could be that your ability allows you to communicate with with power and, and stir people's emotions. You could deliver spectacular speeches and enlightening uh, in all their implications. But without love, you'd accomplish nothing of lasting value. He says without love, all of that is just making noise. This is especially important for the church at Corinth because, as I said, they were... They were celebrating that gift of tongues like it was intended to build those tongue-speaking people up when love demands that all gifts be used to build other people up. If it's not done in love, it entirely misses the point. And no doubt within the church, there were people who heard this at Corinth and thought, yeah, you tell them, Paul, go get them. Their gifts aren't really all that great. But now Paul goes on in verse 2 to say, well, all those other surpassing gifts that you think are so wonderful, like prophecy and supernatural knowledge and even working miracles, they are empty unless they're fueled by love. Right in verse 2, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. Understand, that isn't describing someone who is merely gifted or talented with knowledge and mysteries and faith. They have the totality of it, Paul says. Like, what amazing person this must be if they had all knowledge and all mysteries and all faith. But no love, and it reduces them to complete insignificance. So Paul's saying, look, you could foretell the future. You could understand the entire Bible perfectly and just quote all of Scripture. If you had so much faith that you could perform miracles like moving a mountain, if you don't do it in love, what is it that all of your mountain moving amounts to? Paul says, I can do all of that without love, and I am nothing. He goes on to say, even the most self-sacrificing actions are meaningless without love. In verse 3, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. So you could throw a yard sale, unload each piece of personal property that you own and donate every last penny to the poor and to gospel missions. You could be faithful to the point of being martyred like the apostles or burned at the stake like any number of historic Christians. But without love, Paul says, it profits me nothing. It does not earn you a bit of spiritual credit. 
There's such a, a sharp and sudden ending to these verses. He keeps using this word, nothing. I just for a moment say this as harshly as I think Paul intends it. If you could speak every language, even the celestial dialect of holy angels, without love, you're just making noise. You're saying nothing. And if you were the most intelligent, most insightful, most faith-filled disciple of Jesus and could miraculously move mountains without love, you're nothing. And if you could make the most magnificent sacrifices, starting with all your own possessions and even to the point of giving up your own life, without love, all your sacrifices would be good for nothing. Like, how startling are those verses to you? Imagine a man who's able to speak every language, preach wonderful sermons, explain every mystery of Scripture, predict the future, perform miracles, give away all his money, and his life ends as a martyr for the sake of the gospel. And without love, Paul says, that man has said nothing, done nothing, and earned nothing. How can he say such things? Well, it's because, so as I told the guys at the rescue mission on Thursday, God judges your actions and your heart. Our salvation through the Lord Jesus is an expression of God's love. Our service in the church, the body of the Lord Jesus, must also be an expression of his love. Here's how Peter explains it in another one of those one another passages. In 1 Peter 1.21, he says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Or in other words, since the Spirit has brought you to the truth and to sincere, to genuine love of your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you ought to go on in your life loving one another fervently, he says, with a pure heart. Church members are called to a fervent, sincere, earnest, zealous, eager, intense, even ferocious love for one another. Without love, anything else you do or don't do is meaningless. That's the priority of love in verses 1 through 3. The properties of love are in verses 4 through 7. Like if church members would do everything in love, what would that look like? Well, verses 4 through 7. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envies not. Love vaunts not itself, is not puffed up does not behave itself unseemly, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If I've counted correctly, there's 15 characteristics of love as Paul explains them from both sides. You know, here's, here's what love will do. 
And here's what love won't do. And I don't know we need to do an in-depth study of all 15, but instead let me point out a couple of basic characteristics of Paul's list there in verses 4 through 7. First off, as I said, he is making a list both positively and negatively, showing here's what love does and here's what love does not do. Love does or love is patient, kind, rejoicing in truth, bearing, believing, hoping, and enduring all things. Love does not or is not envious, arrogant, boastful, rude, selfish, or short-tempered. It thinks no evil, or it means literally, it does not keep an accounting ledger of here's all the wrongs that have been done to me. Here's everybody's bad behavior in the past. So we would say it keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice in iniquity. That is, it takes no joy in catching others do wrong. Paul's list here is just a simple list of here's how love behaves and here's how love does not behave. The other way we can see these 15 characteristics is love requires both feeling and doing. That is, love is found in a combination of actions and emotions. The world around us is... (laughs) just incredibly guilty of defining love as only a feeling. It is some mushy, incorporeal gushiness of sentimentality. And when they stop feeling love, then they also stop behaving lovingly. But here's my confession. (laughs) Preachers, including myself, have been guilty of defining love only by action saying constantly, it's not about how you feel, it's about what you do. Y'all, it's both. (laughs) It's clearly both. Real love is not a hole that you fall into. It is not comprised of emotionless actions. Real love is the determination of your will in regard to both your emotions and your actions. He says in verse 4, love envies not. That envy is an emotion, right? It's not puffed up in verse 4. That's a way of describing pride. That's an emotion. Verse 6, you get emotions both positively and negatively, right? Do you find joy in catching others do wrong, or do you joy in the truth? Because as much as some would say, you know, to be Loving, you just can't tell people about their sin. That's an unloving thing to do. Well, love doesn't rejoice in people doing wrong, but love does rejoice in truth. Not compromising or promoting disobedience or unrighteousness. And so we see the emotional side of love, yet we also see actions that go beyond emotions here. To be loving, you must behave in patient, kind, selfless way. Real love acts. It it does things. And by that I don't mean love acts like love pretends, although 
Honestly, it feels that way sometimes, right? No, don't anybody agree with me. Just make me feel bad up here. Love puts feelings into sacrificial action. Right? What is, what, who, God, who is love? What is the example we have of him? God so loved the world that he gave, right? So love is not just a feeling, it also comes out in sacrificial actions. So listen to what this means. If, if real love is found at this combination of both emotion and action, right? It, it resides at the intersection of how you feel and what you do, then both your action and emotions are required if you're going to claim to love. Specifically, Paul's argument would tell us that if you're going to say that you love the Lord Jesus and that you love his church, then you have to back that up by not only how you feel about the church, but also what you do with the church. There is no point in passionately proclaiming your love for the church without backing it up by faithful attendance and active service. On the other hand, you could, you know, seemingly serve the church diligently, be here every time the door is open, meet every outward expectation of a church member, but only in the sense of cold, passionless, this is what I have to do. In other words, you could do it all, but not do it in love. And there's no profit in that. It doesn't accomplish anything. Unless you both deeply feel and faithfully serve in the Lord's church, all your claims of love are nothing more than meaningless noisemaking. That's what Paul is saying. This theme of service, right, it, it, it hasn't changed. And I'll, I'll show you that in a minute. But let me add here that often preachers or teachers or you know, overprotective parents will encourage someone to come to 1 Corinthians 13 and insert the name of their intended significant other into this passage in the place of the word charity or in place of the word love. You know, if you want to know whether or not Jim Bob's right for you, you just got to come here and read Jim Bob's name into everything, right? Is Jim Bob kind? Is Jim Bob not envied? Does he not behave unseemly? Is he not easily provoked? Is he long-suffering? Right? I think probably somebody told Joy to do that. I'm really glad that she didn't listen. Because Jason is not always long-suffering or kind. And, and Jason gets jealous and prideful. And, and he behaves badly. There is only one name in the history of humanity that can truly be substituted into these verses. And we need to say that here because if you're at all frustrated with this call to both feel deeply and serve enthusiastically, then you need to understand who it is that you're doing it for. Jesus loved the church. Jesus gave himself for the church. He calls this church his body and you should feel love and serve in love because he deserves it. Praise God that Jesus is patient and kind, that he's not envious and boastful and arrogant. Jesus is not 
rude or selfish or irritable. He doesn't keep a record of our wrongs. He is, in fact, washed away our sins with his own blood. When you're saved, you are called to be conformed to his image. And so you have every reason to look at these 15 emotions and actions of love and embrace them. In fact, in our final point, Paul's going to argue you need to embrace the emotions and action of love because anything else that you would value more than that is temporary. So let's look at the permanence of love in verses 8 through 13. Just listen to how Paul describes. Look, love, love's going to go beyond anything else that you think you're going to hold on to. Love never fails. Whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part But then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Verses 8 through 13 contain some of the most highly debated verses in Scripture. I'm tempted to say Paul has laid out a theological landmine that it's going to be beyond us to navigate ourselves through all the way this morning, but I'd be remiss if I at least didn't point out the difficulty. Most of it revolves around verse 10, the phrase, when that which is perfect is come. Exactly what or who is Paul talking about when he talks about when that which is perfect will come? Well, think, think through this with me for a minute, because some will argue That which is perfect is describing the completed scripture. You understand, the the word of God was not completely written. Paul was literally in the process of writing it as he wrote this, right? And so if that's the case, when you look at verse 8, Paul is saying the spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues and knowledge will all cease because before Scripture was completed, according to verse 8, we know in part. We prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect comes, the partial will be put aside. That word perfect really means complete. And so in this case, it would be the complete Bible. Meaning that miraculous spiritual gifts continued as a witness through the time of the New Testament But once the scripture was completed, we have the complete revelation of God and those miraculous gifts faded away, right? Because they were incomplete. They were just partial things. Others would say, when that which is perfect is come, it is speaking of the return of Jesus. 
They point to verse 12 and ask about, well, what is that this is seeing face-to-face means? Don't we expect to see Jesus face-to-face? Don't we expect to know him as he knows us? Well, yeah, of course. But I think that interpretation would also suggest that the gift of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge continue until the return of the Lord Jesus. And it also fails to explain why Paul would describe it as that which is perfect instead of he who is perfect. So I lean toward that first view. I'm not going to be entirely shocked if I'm wrong. But I will say, even if that second view is right, it doesn't mean the gift of tongues is still available. Up in verse 9, Paul says, prophecy shall fail, tongues shall cease, knowledge shall vanish away. In reality, those verbs are interesting because the one about tongues not only says that it's going to stop, but it, it literally means they will stop themselves. Anyway, for now, let me try to put your mind at ease. Both of those views are really just side notes to what Paul's main point in this text is. The main point is obvious when you see how he starts in verse 8 and how he ends in verse 13, right? He starts, love never fails, it never ends. And in verse 13, what still remains is faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of those is love. So Paul's main point in these verses is the the eternally enduring nature of love. It never ends. Right? We can debate about those spiritual gifts and if they end and when they'll end, but what you can't debate is that they will in fact end and love will not end. It never fails. Prophecy will fail, tongues will cease, knowledge will vanish away, love will go on forever. All of those are partial, but you can love fully. In fact, with the church at Corinth, thinking that the highly visible spiritual gifts was the only way to prove you were a really spiritual person, Paul sort of kindly and sort of sarcastically says in verse 11, I don't know what the problem is with y'all, I grew up. When I was a child, I spoke like a child and understood as a child and thought like a child. I didn't want to be a child forever, right? Someday, that childness that you've got has to get put away. Someday, you're going to have to embrace love and grow up. You're getting all enamored with these individual abilities and in the process, you're not using those gifts in love and those who who don't have the showiest gifts aren't doing anything at all and certainly that's not loving. Why is it that y'all don't want to be a grown-up church? So there's the famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. It was not written to get put into a Hallmark card for anniversaries or, or read, it, read it weddings, this beautifully poetic text was written in order to encourage church members to fulfill their Christ-given commands to love one another, to prove to all the world that we truly are disciples of the Lord Jesus by loving one another. And if you can't do that, or rather, if you won't do that, 
then nothing else you do is ever going to add up to much. You could know multiple languages and be a gifted speaker in each. You could unlock the deep truths of Scripture. You could have so much faith that performing miracles is commonplace. You could give every penny to the benefit of the poor. You could give your own life as a martyr. And in the end, unless that's done in love, it adds up to nothing. It says nothing. It's doing nothing. It's worth nothing. Instead, you're called to embrace the emotions and actions of genuine love, to feel towards others in the church and act towards others in the church in love. And nothing else that you might embrace in your life will have that kind of lasting significance because the greatest of abilities like tongues and knowledge and and prophecy, none of those things are going to last. Paul lists three Christian characteristics that outlast everything, that endure permanently. He lists faith, hope, and love. But he says, look, that's not even a contest of what the greatest of those is. The greatest of those is clearly love. And I think his his reasoning would be that, well, someday your faith is going to be sight. Someday your hope is going to be realized. But there is never a time where love given to us through the gift of Jesus Christ is ever going to get replaced. Every member of this church has a Christ-given duty to love one another. Now, because clearly each of us are gifted and talented in different ways, those acts of love are going to show differently in each of our lives, but they have to be there in each of our lives. We all have to embrace those feelings and actions of love, no matter how we're gifted, no matter what abilities we have. In fact, that's what Paul's arguing for at the end of chapter 12, right? You can covet earnestly the best gifts. You can desire different gifts. And yet, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And love is that more excellent way. Not that love replaces the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but love is the fuel that makes those gifts work. In fact, after 1 Corinthians 13, I can't start preaching chapter 14, but after 1 Corinthians 13, in which he explains the priority of love and the properties of love and the permanence of love, Paul's next words are, beginning of chapter 14, follow after love. Word there means to follow, to chase, to, to pursue, to hunt, right? Chase love, hunt down love, give after it, chase it down like it has just taken the last cupcake. Right? Go for it. If you love the Lord Jesus and you love the church of the Lord Jesus, purposefully search out ways to chase down love so that you can both feel deeply and serve faithfully, pursue love. 